from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 8. Difficult Choices The original 1981 edition of Wizardry is one of the most important, influential, and yet relatively unknown computer RPGs ever released. Binge Edwards, 10 Classic Computer RPGs, PC Magazine, 2012. California Pacific was getting into financial trouble internally. This caused them to delay paying me my royalties. This was only for a short period of time at first, but then they just stopped paying. Richard Garriott, interview for the Wizard Journals, Summer 1984. Once everything was ready, Ultimos distributed throughout the country. For this occasion, Garriott wrote an article illustrating the innovation brought on by his decision to show the dungeons via a first-person perspective. This short article was published in issue 39 of Steve Jackson's magazine Space Gamer. In May of 1981, Ultimo was greeted with great enthusiasm both by players and specialized publications that were emerging at the beginning of the 1980s. Within a few months, sales had reached considerable numbers, but by September, Ultima had to square off against a formidable competitor, Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord. Developed by Andrew C. Greenberg and Robert Woodhead, Wizardry was the result of a long process starting in 1978 which was when Greenberg wrote it first in BASIC. As with Garriott's Akalabeth, Wizardry was extremely slow, and when Woodhead saw the game in June of 1980, he set to work bringing Greenberg's code over to UCSD Pascal. The two turned to the founder of Surtech Software Incorporated, Norman Siratek, for the publication of their game, and managed to present a first version in November of the same year. But without a 48k standalone Pascal runtime from Apple, it would require buying a language system from Apple, priced at $495 at the time, to play it. The few months of delay required for Apple to deliver the module, and also many months thereafter, were used to polish the game. Norman's father, an experienced businessman, Frederick Siratek, advised his son to pay particular attention to the outer presentation of the promising game, focusing on professional packaging and the inclusion of a comprehensive manual suitable even for those less experienced with computers. Following this advice, Surtech enlisted a skilled draftsman, Will McLean, known to role players for his brilliant illustrations in the Dragon Magazine and the Dungeon Master Manual. Wizardry was very different from Ultima in many ways. The first feature that stood out was its party of six adventurers, which the player had to create at the beginning of the game by juggling classes, races, and alignments, all gleaned from advanced Dungeons and Dragons. The goals of the game were to explore dungeons, gain experience, and advance one's characters, all the while finding weapons, magic items, and trying to survive hordes of enemies as each dungeon level increased in difficulty. A large part of the screen was occupied by the user interface, which listed party members, while at the top right, a dialog box explained what was going on to the player. There was also a 3D display of the dungeon in the style of Akalabeth, or Escape. Encounters with monsters were random and were not displayed via the first-person view, and were therefore unavoidable, which differed somewhat from Richard Garriott's game design. Although in some ways more complex due to the high number of classes, levels, skill combinations, and party system, the combat scheme in Wizardry took place in a less interactive and less engaging form, relying instead upon tactical immersion. 
party members occupying the top positions on the list were in direct contact with the enemy, while those placed in positions 4 through 6 were closer to the rear of the group, and limited to performing a small number of skills or support actions. The tactical implications of this design become clear. Stronger fighters should be placed towards the front of the party, while the more powerful, but weaker, magic users should be placed towards the rear. Overall, Wizardry was a fun and innovative game. A dungeon crawler CRPG that focused on exploring one's surroundings and fighting monsters. While resembling a Calabeth and Ultima in terms of having a small part of the screen dedicated to the 3D visualization of the dungeons, Wizardry was equipped with a completely different method of gameplay. There was no overworld. It also possessed a sophisticated party system that Garriott's games were, at the time, lacking. Greenberg and Woodhead's game won over the public and media with a presentation superior to the competition, along with intriguing gameplay. Starting in the first weeks with an unexpectedly high sales performance, by mid-1982, Wizardry had sold 24,000 copies, making it the best-selling CRPG to date and beating Ultima by around 4,000 copies, even though Ultima had had a head start of a few months. Together with Akalabeth and Ultima, Wizardry had a strong influence on the gaming industry much more than Dungeon Quest. Many players, who later became programmers, decided to take over Greenberg and Woodhead's famous system and improve upon it. The success of the two CRPGs was a clear sign that the market was hungry for these kinds of products, and an increasing number of software houses began developing similar games, or genuine clones, giving rise to two subgenres that would compete with each other for over a decade. The unique duel between Ultima and Wizardry would not last long, despite Ultima's success and the production of other software like Brain Teaser Boulevard, which was the first video game by Chuck Boucher, one of Richard's old companions in Dungeons & Dragons. At the beginning of 1982, CPCC stopped paying Richard his royalties. The reasons for CPCC's failure have never been fully clarified. Garriott, for his part, dramatically recounted his first encounter with Remmers and how he was a spectator of a drug deal in a hotel room in his book Explore Create. According to him, the closure of the California Pacific Computer Company was closely linked to the drug addictions of its founder. To much surprise, when royalties for Ultima began to arrive late, CPCC's offices had already been long deserted. In truth, though, CPCC did not close down immediately. Records indicate that Remmer's last year of business was 1984, with a final administrative document submitted on May 22nd of 1985. In an interview taking place after Ultima 2's launch, Garriott still claimed to earn about $1,000 a month in royalties from his first game with the company. Even so, Garriott's decision to abandon the partnership with CPCC was not only a consequence of CPCC's economic difficulties, but also the most logical choice as he evaluated other opportunities. CPCC was at best a minor publisher that, apart from the connections made by Remmers in California, was without a national network. It had to rely on SoftCell. It probably wasn't able to provide Garriott with the resources necessary to support his professional growth, especially given the projects he was starting to consider. At the same time, Bill Budge had also decided to leave CPCC, and had signed a contract with Electronic Arts. The loss of Remmer's main two programming stars put a heavy burden on the balance sheets of his company, and CPCC folded within two years. With the rift forming between Garriott and Remmer's, copies of Ultima already on the shelves were not replaced, and soon sold out. This was also a catalyst for losing the clash with Wizardry, which would continue to remain in the ranking of best-selling games for over three years, until 1985, reaching the then-astonishing figure of 50,000 copies sold across various platforms. 
Faced with CPCC's crisis, Richard's first reaction was to confide in his brother Robert, who was studying economics at MIT. The two soon realized that CPCC's conditions were such that it would be very difficult to pursue any outstanding royalties. A backup plan was therefore required. And Richard also had other things to think about. In addition to losing his publisher, he was experiencing problems performing at school. These were largely a result of his choices. He had spent too much time becoming engrossed in the Society for Creative Anachronisms activities, spending time with his friends, and of course, programming. Richard also began reflecting on the idea of becoming a full-time developer and abandoning his studies. Ultima's success confirmed that he had more talent than luck, and that perhaps video games weren't going to be a temporary craze, like hula hoops. Becoming convinced that video games were more futuristic than fad, as soon as he completed his second game, he immediately set out to work on a sequel. However, with Remmer's company out of the picture, he was left without a publisher, or indeed a source of income. With two successful titles on his resume, it wouldn't be a problem finding a company interested in publishing a follow-up game. However, Richard had very high expectations, not only from an economic perspective, CPCC had paid high percentages, but also from a production standpoint. In competing with wizardry, he experienced for himself how much of a difference professional packaging makes, and he understood that to be successful, it was not enough to create a new game. He had to take a different approach to the overall product. Wizardry's well-prepared and printed packaging with its professional manual detailed and embellished with Will McLean's remarkable drawings was no new phenomenon. An increasing number of publications could boast ever higher production values, with large illustrated cardboard boxes instead of Ziploc bags and professionally written manuals replacing typewritten and photocopied sheets. This higher quality increased production costs, but the public unreservedly rewarded them with good sales. One company whose name is inseparably linked to this trend is Infocom. Their story started in MIT's computer rooms, where another fundamental title was being played profusely. Colossal Cave Adventure, the first example of a text adventure written by Will Crowther, a programmer who loved visiting caves and Dungeons and Dragons mainly to entertain his daughters. Colossal Cave Adventure allowed the player to interact with the program using elementary constructs very similar to natural language. The game accepted phrases of two words as commands, such as go east, look up, and get food. Like Star Trek, Colossal Cave Adventure passed from hand to hand, undergoing changes and expansions and influencing students, teachers, and programmers, becoming the progenitor of a new genre of games. Inspired by Crowther's creation, four MIT students decided to make a similar but more sophisticated game. This game, initially called Dungeon, understood more complex sentences, including articles, numbers, and more. Too big to fit into the limited memory available on early 80s microcomputers, the text adventure was divided into three parts, the first one being published in 1980 under the name of Zork. Thanks to its excellent writing, Zork was a huge success, and the small company that created it would grow quickly, going on to create more games. Specializing in text adventures, Infocom became the champion of this market, and by December of 1983, all ten of the games that they had produced to that point were in soft sales top 40. With Zork in a leading position in the market and three other Infocom games in the top 10, the four partners were ready to become even more daring. Having chosen the path of self-publication from the beginning, the founders of Infocom had total freedom and did not hesitate to do what other publishers wouldn't. Their software house created more and more ambitious games, investing in the quality of its products and accompanying them with a growing number of inserts. Other early developers had already begun creating support materials alongside their installation instructions 
to supply the player with supplementary text and images that would otherwise not fit into the tiny memory of computers at the time. But Infocom was aiming much higher. Their mystery adventure, Deadline, released in March of 1982, came with a folder labeled Police, containing a notepad for the inspector, that is, the player, a small plastic bag with three small white pills, which were in the game, found next to the victim's body, a transcript of some suspect's interrogations, the coroner's report, a letter from the victim's lawyer, a police memorandum, a laboratory report on the analysis of the cup of tea drunk by the victim, and a photo of the crime scene. Soon, Infocom's extras became their trademark, also known as Feelies, in reference to the movies in Aldous Huxley's novel Brave New World. Cinematographic works that could be seen, listened to, and felt at the same time. Skillfully designed to enrich the player's experience of the game, these also acted as an effective anti-piracy system. Infocom games could continually ask the player to refer to the feelies in order to solve a puzzle, answer a question correctly, or perform an action. Given the difficulty level of some games, many users had begun to contact Infocom directly for help to overcome more challenging obstacles. The boom in popularity of Infocom's adventures caused a flood of calls and letters to come to their offices, thus prompting their management team to create a dedicated paid telephone helpline, which was followed by further publishing manuals containing hints and even complete guides. These were called Invisiclues and were among the first clue books of their kind to become extremely popular in the 80s and 90s before the internet took over as the prime source of information for desperate players. Garriott would soon provide Ultima players with dedicated solution books as well. For his next title, Richard wanted to do something similar to Infocom's packaging. A first step to immersing the player was taken when Remmers advised him to use his pseudonym Lord British. The choice was purely based on marketing, but it had created an unexpected yet interesting consequence. The player found themselves to be buying a game written by the ruler of its world, the programmer himself, who entrusted them with the mission of saving the world of Caesarea. Garriott wanted to continue pushing the boundaries of creativity. However, this was something that not all publishers were willing to do. Despite his track record, many backed down when he presented his requests, namely the freedom to create material to be included in the packaging. The founders of Infocom had gambled with their own money and won, but few publishers were ready to follow this path and spend more than their competition, turned off by the risk of their profit margins narrowing. Founded only a year earlier by Trip Hawkins, Electronic Arts was interested in Garriott as they had been on the hunt for well-known brands to buy and publish. A newcomer to the market, but with an innovative business plan and a solid financial support from some of the most skilled venture capitalists in history, including Don Valentine, a key person in the birth and success of Atari and then of Apple, Richard didn't have a real brand yet since Ultima wasn't a sequel to Acalabeth, but Hawkins would have gladly recruited him to his team as he was very focused on prominent personalities and he was also trying to stand out from the politics of managers like Atari's CEO, Ray Kassar, who considered programmers as simple workers. Years later, Hawkins would recall his failed attempt at recruiting Richard to his first core of superstar programmers for the, quote, We See Farther campaign, which included Bill Budge. I initially targeted Lord British, and we met in 1982. He was tied up with a really bad distributor and wanted to do it himself. He had the brand power and guts to do it. The time was not yet ripe, but sooner or later, Hawkins would somehow bring Garriott aboard his battleship. Having ruled out other publishers who didn't want to deal with a risky commercial operation like his, only one software house remained in consideration, at least from Richard's perspective. Online Systems, founded a few years earlier by Ken and Roberta Williams. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, 
Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash podcast or at spam 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 humbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T-H-E-I-R-A dot I-T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-O-N-T-A-T-O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.